0: Hello and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 396. Today is Sunday, the 8th of November, 2020. My name is Minter Dial and I'm your host for this podcast. This week's interview I'm very excited about. It's with Amit Varma, who's the first journalist to win twice the prestigious Bastiat Prize, which aims to honor writers whose work cleverly and wittily promotes the institutions of the free society. Based in Mumbai, Amit was named by Businessweek magazine in its India's 50 Most Powerful People 2009 list for his blog India Uncut. He's an author and host of the Seen and the Unseen podcast, one of the most impressive podcasts you'll ever come across for its long-form interviews and superlative guests. In this conversation with Amit, we discussed the state of India, the philosophy behind the man and the podcast, India's role in leadership and film, the importance of meaningful conversation, and many more topics. You'll find all the show notes on Minterdial.com. Please consider to drop in your rating and review, and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now, let's go to the show. Amit Varma. My goodness, what a pleasure to have you. Uh, before recording this, I, I spent several days wringing my hands thinking, oh my gosh, what questions are i going to be able to ask you? I mean, I've, I've had the chance to interview you before. Uh, amongst other celebrations, you have won two Bastiat prizes for journalism 2007 and 2015. You are extremely well known in Eng- in in india <laughs> in english speaking world part as well uh for your wonderful blog you've written a book which did very well and um and you're a man about so many talents and so many interests so amit how do you like to describe yourself
1: uh, well, I, I was having fun listening to you because you made me sound so good as you know my uh self-esteem just went up a notch. there i i, I think i've kind of uh, dabbled in a bunch of things. Uh So, you know, post facto, looking back on it, it seems like I've had an interesting life, but uh, it's just I've really stumbled from, uh, you know, one thing to another. So I am fundamentally a writer. That's what I do. I have, uh, you know, from the time I was perhaps four or five years old, I wanted to do nothing else. Uh And uh, then I've stumbled along doing other things. I, you know, did spent a little bit of time in advertising. I spent in the 90s, I spent five years doing television, you know, when Channel V launched here, I was, um, uh, you know, I joined them, I was part of MTV for a few years. And uh, then I tried to be an entrepreneur, didn't work out, uh, joined journalism, did journalism for a few years, uh, did my blog, left it all to play professional poker for five years, and then came back to, uh, uh, came back to do various things. I was editing an online magazine and all of that. So I won't say I came back to do a podcast, but the podcast happened and that kind of became, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, took me by surprise by uh, becoming bigger than I thought it would be. So uh, I think it's, it's, uh, you you know, for the, uh, I've always called myself a writer, there was a brief period where I could have called myself a professional gambler. And uh, right now I can safely call myself a podcaster as well. So it's an interesting journey.
0: I can certainly confirm that in some ways i mean you 've followed the the stream of new technologies within media i you know basically the the business model of journalism has been under siege throughout this whole time, and where it used to be writing and and the journalist was given priority to do whatever they wanted all of a sudden they had to interact with the, the, the riffraff. and and then you went into blogging and now into podcasting so it 's a it's a wonderful journey. Before we get into a whole lot of other topics, just in the realm of understanding the man behind the pen per se, uh, because you are interested in so many topics and you've done so many fascinating things, I wanted to understand what sort of music does Amit Varma listen to and what's your favorite piece of music? I mean, I I, I listen to an eclectic mix of things.
1: I was, you know, in my college years, I was into a lot of uh, uh, alternative rock, I was uh, sort of in college at around the time Grunge Shade Pearl Jam Nirvana all of those guys and even, uh, you know, going a, a, a little further back people like the replacements and stuff, but my, uh, uh, I mean, my favorite artist of all time, perhaps my comfort food is really Van Morrison, so that's, uh, uh, you know, and of course, you know, Springsteen Diller and all of those guys. Uh, but uh, I, I, I think I'm more of a books person than a music person for some reason. I listened to a lot of music when I was much younger, but I don't know if it happens to everyone, but you reach a certain age where you really stop listening to new music and you just keep going back to what is comfort food, right? And that's the sort of stuff you uh, listen to. So, uh, and obviously also like you might be surprised i have named mainly a uh, uh, Western artist, but just, uh, again, a mix of Indian music from here and there, but uh, I, 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 like, I'm not a connoisseur or something. So.
0: Right. right. Well, it's just, that's, that's the thing I wanted to understand. Uh, I went to see Van Morrison a couple of years ago, and the one thing I learned is you don't ask for a moon dance. Otherwise, you'll get bollocks um, by him. In, in India, amongst the other fascinating things, and I've been there um, a few times and have come to understand just a little bit, it's a highly complex country. And I think I remember you said in one podcast or somewhere, you said that English is the 17th language or something like that in India. How many languages do you speak? And, uh, and is that true about English in India?
1: I don't remember saying that, but what I would have said and what I uh, often keep saying is that um, English is an Indian language uh, in the sense that, you know, we have uh, sort of uh, owned it in a sense i mean if you look at the total number of english speakers in india i think it will rival many countries you consider english speaking countries and one of the things that we take for granted in india but i, I uh, realized later in life that uh, you know one should not take it for granted is quite wonderful as an opportunity is that we are all multilingual we can speak three four languages so you know uh, my my i'm half bengali and you know when i was a kid we grew up speaking bengali at home but outside in the city we would speak hindi so those are the two sort of languages I uh, uh, knew, but for me, English was always like my uh, first language. And this is again, you know, when you talk about India, India is is just uh, uh, India is bigger than uh, Europe in so many ways. In the sense that we have such a diversity here in terms of languages and cultures, and just even different parts of different cities are like separate countries. The, uh, You're know, not politically, but just in in terms of the cultural differences and all of that, in a very delightful way that there's just a mix of so much happening. You know, you could walk two miles from where you are and it's, it's different, but different in a good way. So in a similar way, you know, we speak all these uh, multiple languages. And I was growing up, I was really part of that English speaking elite. My father was in the civil services. So... Uh, You know, uh, I was very fortunate to sort of grow up in a house where there were thousands of books all the time, which I could pick up and read. So in a manner of speaking English was always the language that I was best at and which is why, you know, you just asked me about the musicians I listen to Uh, as far as books are concerned, you know, uh, um, 99.9% of the books I've read are obviously in English. So that's really like my first language. I don't, uh, you know, think of it as um, anything other than that
0: it's funny i i'm fascinated by languages I, I i sort of dabble in eight languages in terms of my own little repertoire and and being let's say somewhat european i've lived the majority of my life in europe in any event uh, we are indo-european and and it's sort of obvious that if you really want to understand our languages that we need to sort of punch into and i think punch is a perfect word because if I'm not mistaken, punch means five in Hindi. And and the the number five around the world almost can be related back to punch. Piat in Russian, the five, the P and the the uh, F in in English uh, always had this sort of relationship with how it was written. Anyway, so it's it's a fascinating place. And the idea of that diversity is something I wanted to dig in on. India is such a complex country with so many different cultures. It's huge, obviously. I, 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 I've also observed that there are a number of really important CEOs around the world who are Indian and uh, to name two obvious ones, the ex CEO of Pepsi now chair on the, on the board, um, who came from Yale and the and Satya Nadella from Microsoft. I I was wondering to what extent there's there's possibly an Indian fiber something that culturally makes for being a great leader because in both cases they really not only have performed well but are seeming to be extremely well appreciated people as humans.
1: I think what's kind of happening here is uh, the selection bias. Uh, in the sense that you're looking at a couple of the Indians who actually made it to the absolute top and then you might be essentializing and saying, oh, this is a quality that Indians have. I don't, I, 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 you know, it could, could be dangerous to think like that. I, I did an episode um, on uh, education in India with the economist Karthik Murli which was my longest episode so far, three hours, 20 minutes. <laughs> And uh, Karthik speaks at one and a half X speed. So uh, we, we packed in a lot there. And and one of the, um, uh, you know, insightful points that he made about India is that our education system does is not optimized for teaching. It is optimized for sorting. So what will happen is that you'll have these really tough entrance exams to these institutes, which are, you know, the IITs and the IIMs and all that. And using those, you'll sort out who your brightest kids are and you won't teach anything to the rest of them right? And, and uh, pe- people don't see that that goes below the surface. So then you have these very bright kids who have been successfully sorted at these institutions, which do perform at a certain level. And then they go abroad, and they go to Silicon Valley, and so on. And uh, they become big stars. So, you know, the, the, the thing is, we uh, actually you and, and from the outside, you might imagine that India oh, India's educating its kids well, but that's not the case. It is just sorting out the brightest. And it's, uh, therefore, it's Creating this really small elite and is educating them well, and and then they go all over the world and they do their things. But I wouldn't say that that speaks to some particular uh, quality necessarily in them. And and there again, you'd have to, you know, even within India, we'll do our own bit of essentializing, and we'll say, oh, you know, South Indians are like this, and they are studious and they're whatever, and North Indians are like that. But I just feel that that's kind of dangerous, and especially, you know, in in Uh, these two cases, or even Sundar Pichai at uh, Google slash Alphabet. And, you know, it's, you you can't generalize from these guys. Uh, uh, These guys are, first of all, they're obviously extraordinary at what they do and very talented. And also they've had the good fortune to, you know, get all those breaks and all of that. But I I think it's dangerous to generalize from that and, uh, you know, um, uh, draw larger conclusions.
0: Mm. Well, I'm going to keep on pushing because what seems obvious to me is that there are there are in the united states in particular there are many countries that are you know, people that are emigrating from around the world and so there you know frankly you could imagine a very the the cream of the cream of every country gets to the top but whether it's in janui or nadella or kapoor at rank at there's something about the way that they are that for me speaks to something that comes out of that Indian culture, whatever that is, of course, because it's wide and specific elements for me are twofold. One is this notion of dealing with diversity and, and just being able to handle, let's say the cluster (laughs) or to use a nice word of Of languages and cultures that you have to deal with in India and the second one and and it also feels highly Indian without being religious is this notion of karma and and I feel that those are those two qualities in particular are really interesting in leadership today um I You
1: know, first of all, it's quite possible that you have more insights into this than I do, because what often happens is that you tend to take the world around you for granted. So because I've been in India all my life, I might take these traits that you're picking out and you're uh, defining as, uh, you know, you're saying that, okay, this is Indianness. I might take it for granted and never notice it because I'm here, I'm surrounded by it all the time. So that's possible. Having said, uh, I, 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 I mean, if we look at what are the traits that some of these Indian kids have in common who study in the IITs and they go abroad is that Uh, Number one, and partly because of the sorting system, you're actually uh, sorting out the kids who work the hardest. But uh, number one, they'd have a good work ethic. Uh, They'd work hard, uh, which is a great thing. And and, and they wouldn't take that opportunity for granted. uh, Mm -hmm. That, you know, when I was growing up in the 80s and 90s, um, before so many Indians used to go abroad, uh you know before liberalization and all of that it was considered a big freaking deal just to go abroad you know mm-hmm. if you went abroad to study firstly you were super rich or maybe you got a scholarship and you went abroad but just by going you had achieved something so what would happen then in the next couple of generations kids like i'm assuming you know um nadella must be three four years older than me uh pichai would be around the same whatever so uh, uh 90s kids uh, you know, you you go abroad, you've, you've already, you, you, you're so grateful that you've made that one step. It's not something you can take for granted. So I'd assume that there is that work ethic where one, they worked hard to get there and two, they're going to keep working hard because, uh, you know, they want to make it work. Uh, that karma element i don't really uh, know i like i i haven't read interviews of these guys but i don't imagine they would ever talk about that and uh, uh it's it's quite possible that they would even be non believers as i am um it's not um, so i i don't think that's a, really a big part of it one stereotypical quality which is sort of ascribed to indians often is that you have a a, 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 a sort of a respect for tradition and what's come before you know conservative in a good way you don't want to just you know burn the whole world down and uh, so you know I don't know if that's a factor that you know while they're innovating and while they're getting ahead and doing whatever they're doing uh, uh, there's also uh, an appreciation of the importance of stability in you know, in their companies or in whatever they do. But I don't know. I think even that might be overthinking it, to be uh, honest. I think I think these are just, you know, I mean, and these are really questions which ought to be posed to these people, you know. Well, but, as soon as I
0: get access to them. And, and to your point, I, I certainly, I think that if you start saying I'm karmic, then that's going down the wrong road. So A, you don't talk about it. B, you don't need to be religious to consider, for me, the underlying principle, which is give without expecting in return. And, and that notion of generosity, which is what I sort of ascribe to the idea of karmic, uh, in, enables people to want to trust you because you show your cards and you, and you give and then, then it, it hopefully will come back to you. But you're not expecting it necessarily. And that's, that's the difference that I see. But, you know, I, I, I reading into it the tea leaves, perhaps, that I want. And I wanted to take up your, your point on conservative, because this is another area I wanted to discuss with you. You've said it many times, and I kind of believe that this is somewhat true for every country, but India is a country of paradoxes. And uh, the the paradoxes you choose are presumably coming from your filter, just like I I have my filter and how I view things. uh, What is the biggest paradox that you have in your mind about India? And I want to layer into that my paradox. I think the biggest paradox, and I'm actually
1: sort of, I have explored it over many, many episodes. And obviously at a surface level, there is a paradox that we are on one hand Both a deeply illiberal society, but also liberal in some ways, we are illiberal in the way we treat our women, uh, in, in the way the caste system functions, in the hierarchies within families, all of those ways we are illiberal. But at the same time, there is some kind of liberalism because what is India? India is really just a melting pot, which is so assimilative and all of that. But one of the, and and there are other fault lines like this where you can kind of break it down and find a paradox. But at the heart of it, there's one uh, sort of distinction that uh, I think, and I'm really kind of thinking aloud because this is stuff I've sort of been thinking about recently. I just did an episode which um, uh, released um, um, uh, my latest episode, in fact, 195 with a historian called Anshal Malhotra. And uh, she uh, has chronicled... Um, um, uh she she's chronicled partition survivors the partition of india in 1947 very bloody millions died all of that she's chronicled the stories of survivors and what they've been through and all of that and it's 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 a extremely moving book and and, and one of the reasons is extremely moving is that it delves into the concrete and while chatting with her One of the distinctions we kind of came up with is that when people think of abstract ideas like nationalism, religion, my people, other people, when they think of abstract ideas, you bring out the worst in them because their humanity ebbs away there. It's abstract concepts, right? So, uh, you know, um, um, that other uh, religion is my enemy or that my nation is the best or a million people dead. These are all abstract concepts at this level, everybody's a monster. But when you come down to the level of the concrete, you know, many people who will say bigoted things on Twitter in real life will actually behave wonderfully well with, uh, uh, you know, people of other religions, or other nationalities or whatever. They'll be hospitable. They'll be warm. In real life, it will often be different in the concrete. uh, They'll be good people, but in the abstract, They'll be uh, sort of bad people, and and Anshil told me this very strange and very disturbing story of the, the, there's this village in Multan um, back in the day before partition where uh, every, there's one radio in the village. Right and and there's a news program that comes at uh, nine at night or whatever time it comes and there's just one radio and that's their only entertainment and only access to the outside world and it's a close knit village but it's it's got different religions and communities and all of that so uh, every evening they gather in the village square and they put their radio there and they listen to the news and the person who is telling her this story, is a survivor of partition who managed to get away. And he says that as partition came closer and closer, there would be news on the radio that, you know, so many Muslims have been killed here and so many Hindus have been killed here. And within the village, all these people who, in the concrete, they are such close friends, these abstract notions have broken them up and, in a sense, partitioned them, right, in, in, in a deeper sense than just a geographical partition. And that is so tragic that we sometimes let the abstract rule over the concrete. We are a storytelling species, right? We explain the world to each other through stories. And because we are, we've also evolved in tribal times, we think in tribal ways. And many of these stories will feed into that tribalism. But at the end of the day, these stories are abstract things. These concepts that we hold on to, uh, uh, especially the dangerous one of nationalism, are all abstract things. And when it comes to the real people around us, in a sense, we are liberal but when it comes to um, what we do in this way of these abstractions uh, we are illiberal and, and I think that cuts to the heart of the paradox and I don't even know if it's a paradox anymore because this explains it what, what, uh, it, what is harder to explain is that why do these abstract things have such a grip on us that uh, you know why are we willing to kill other people in the name of just a bleeding concept you know and, and forget the real human relationships that we have with people around us.
0: Well, I feel in your answer, there's a a, a notion that's far bigger than just being Indian, which is the human condition. And to use a, a word you used a couple of times, conservative, as in wanting the traditions. Well, what are traditions but other abstractions and narratives and storytelling that we continue to perpetuate and as abstract as they can get. And it occurs to me that while these, the abstraction, for example, of belonging to a Bengali uh, population or to the, the Delhi tigers or whatever they, they might be of a cricket team. I can't remember what the name is, sorry, but these are abstractions and, and, and they can be my community. And, and if you, can't have things you can latch on to like beliefs or communities this unleashes or uh, takes away your ability to have an identity so there it feels like it's part of the human condition
1: yeah, it is, you know, I mean, you're right. I mean, it's it's two sides of the same coin that we need community to survive. We need a feeling of belonging. What do you belong to? You know, we've evolved in times where we were, our brains have evolved in times where, uh, uh, you, you know, we used to be in small tribes. There was a scarcity of uh, the, the, all kinds of scarcities around us. So we thought of the world in zero-sum ways. We could, you know, um, uh, cognitive psychologists have sort of established that uh, we are comfortable with uh, sort of remembering the names and faces of 150 people, which would be your standard tribe size at that time. But beyond that, it's a problem. Beyond that, it's an abstraction. So I get that, that especially in these atomized times, you need a sense of community and where do you get it from and all of that, and there is a warmth of that. But at the same time, there are all those sort of uh, tribal passions, which can so easily get inflamed these days because that information happens at scale because of social media, you know, Uh, which is um, which is kind of um, uh, disturbing the the other aspect of you know talking about conservatism is i don't uh, you know i don't want to put a judgmental spin on whether it's uh, good or bad or anything like that i think one it is of course natural to hold on to what has worked before uh, that's rational uh, so I, I, at both a sort of a rational level and an emotional level that makes sense you hold on to what has been there before also i think that uh, you know I I, I I found that many of the people in uh, India's recent history by recent I mean maybe the last 200 years that I admire were liberal in their ends but conservative in their means that they wanted a society that was more liberal in the classical liberal sense uh, that, um, um, that um, um, I would sort of uh, use but in, in their means they were conservative they didn't want to burn everything down they realized that all one the structures that are there will remain you can't just uh, you know burn you, if you're going to change them uh, that change has to be gradual and it has to come bottoms up you can't transform society from the top down and and in a sense the 20th century is a cautionary tale against the folly of doing that. So if you want to change society, if you want a more liberal society, that job is really something that has to be done from uh, the bottom up. And this is something Mahatma Gandhi said. I mean, he, of course, died uh, shortly after our uh, independence, uh, by which time he was fairly old and um, perhaps not even in um, uh, not, not, not quite the man he was, but one of those areas of gentle disagreement with the leaders who followed him and were his protégés, people like uh, uh, you know uh, Nehru and Patel and so on. One of those was that you can't change a society from the top down, it's got to happen from the villages and he, he of course had a very idealized uh, notion of villages, uh, himself being b- born in a city and uh, you know lived in cities all his life, so he had an idealized notion of uh, uh, villages and so on but but i think that, that there is something to that and w- part of the turmoil that there is in india part of the churn is that uh, you know we designed a polity uh, uh, g- 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 we 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 designed a system that was at odds with what our society was uh, you know we tried to impose a liberal slash progressive constitution Upon a society which at, at that time wasn't ready for it. and what you see today is in a sense um, you know politics having having caught up with society and and uh, uh, and, and this should be a lesson for uh, liberals everywhere uh, that or, or believers of any sort of uh, ideology or philosoph- philosophy anywhere that if you want your ideas to succeed, your game is not winning elections. Uh, you're, uh, you're, you know that's that's an end uh, sort of uh, consequence that will happen anyway. But you you have to change society from within. Otherwise, just being in power for a short period of time is not really going to uh, change anything. And uh, you know, I, 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 and I think that's something that you know uh, uh, Gandhi knew and and um, you know couldn't convince his uh, proteges of
0: change is a big old topic and of course, uh, there's change within society and the political elements of that. Then there's the work that I work generally do, which is transformation of companies and the cultures within, let's call it an abstract culture that companies create and, and the stories that they have and and bringing around change. I tend to believe that you can't just have the demos, Bringing the change, you do need to tell people what they need, or or enlighten them somehow. I would say, in a in an Indian terminology, be the guru that shows the light, and that spark uh, is definitely needed before you can get to you know make the change, because otherwise you you'll just get faster horses, to quote a Henry, or to ravage a Henry Ford quote. When you when you um you you mentioned the conservative culture. And that, that for me is the biggest paradox that that very strong, you call it illiberal or conservative uh, bent. And yet that sort of feeling of liberalism is absolutely what I felt. And I, I express it through this notion of accepting of diversity, which is a very classical liberal type of philosophy. And that's the paradox that I had. In in terms of Indian specificities, specificities I, um, my friend Rishi Kiani, um, who used to run the India Times, he, uh, he turned me on to a couple of initiatives that were Indian specific with regard to social media. And it sounds like you have a very negative opinion of social media as far as its impact on society is concerned. You can elaborate. But um, Rishi uh, introduced me to Anupam Mittal and uh, the creation of shadi.com. So that for me is an absolute crystallization of that paradox, which is essentially introducing into a highly structured way of getting married through arrangement into uh, up to love marriages. And within Shadi, still there's a sort of, it seems some kind of notion of allowing for arrangements to be better. Uh, What do you think? Therefore, that's a tool that can help from the bottom up, to bring change into a highly structured traditional method for marriage.
1: Yeah, a number of different strands there, uh, which I'll um, <clears throat> sort of take one by one. Number one, you know, I I I don't I I think the analogy of how you change a company's culture and uh, work towards transforming it, I think it's very different from when you look at a country or a society, and I think that's a mistake people sometimes make. It I agree. Lo- You know, in a company, you can do things from the top down. And everyone who works in a company is there voluntarily. They've signed a contract with the company, they have to abide by the rules. If they don't like it, they give their notice period and they leave. In a society, you can't do that. There is no such thing as a
0: social contract. I haven't signed a contract. That's on on, On top of that, you can actually get fired. So, if I tell you to do it, you do it. Otherwise, you're out. So, it, exactly, you're, exactly. You're voluntarily there, but you can be involuntarily dismissed, which, of course, is not what a citizen can do.
1: No, but yeah, but you can be un- uh, you can be dismissed according to the terms of the contract you voluntarily signed. So the whole <laughs> basis of that relationship is something voluntary, which is not the case, uh, which is not a, a citizen's, uh, uh, you know, um, uh, relationship with the, uh, the state because technically it's the state can't sack the citizen, right? The exactly. citizen is a person who is notionally supposed to be in charge. So yeah, well, uh,
0: in, in some democratic countries anyway, put it that way.
1: Yeah, yeah. And, and uh, uh, the other part was when I say conservative, I'm not using it as a synonym for illiberal. I think you can be conservative and liberal in an odd way, you can be conservative in your means and liberal in your ends. So whatever, that's, that's a a different digression. As for my having a negative view of social media, actually, I don't I think it's it's a net positive. Uh, It's an enormous net positive. But at the same time, it's uh, Uh, You know, bringing out negative elements of the human condition, as it were, and the way we relate to each other in society uh, at scale. And and, and that's kind of scary. You know, back in the day, in the 80s and the 90s, there was some kind of a monopoly on truth. You could say that, oh, OK, the NYT has a liberal bias and the Wall Street Journalists, you know, more to the right. But broadly, there was still a consensus on the truth. You had uh, filters and gatekeepers and so on. And all your cranks and crackpots were very localized and did not have a platform. That's completely changed. I think it's a good thing that it's changed, that, uh, you know, everybody can uh, have the chance to, get on a platform and voice themselves and build a following. And and as you pointed out at the start of the show, in a sense, I've benefited from all these new technologies from blogging and podcasting and all of that. You and I would not be talking to each other without uh, uh, this. So it's a massive net positive. But a lot of the turmoil in our society is sort of exacerbated also by what social media enables at scale. And I, I, I think we'll take a long time to kind of really uh, uh, figure out and um, sort of uh, build abstract theories ar- uh, around these concrete uh, occurrences. Um, to get back to Shadi and all, yeah, it's, it's, it's fascinating, right? So you have uh, sort of, it's, it, it, it's like you're still trying to um, uh, kind of make the same thing happen, but uh you, you you you're disrupting the means, but the ends stay the same. In, in the sense you could say that in this case the means are becoming liberal while the ends are still conservative. You're going to have an arranged marriage. So uh, yeah, but I, I have to say I haven't uh, really uh, thought about uh, sh- shadi much or you know, this side of it, but there is a lot of uh, uh, disruption across I, like I often say that you know, India exists in three centuries. Simultaneously, the nineteenth, the twentieth, and the twenty-first, and in a manner of speaking, you could say, and it's not that these are separated or something; they're all they're all within all of us, uh, and and uh, you know, so every day we have to grapple with our own little paradoxes in that sense.
0: In continuing my learnings of India, because obviously it's an arm's length, and it's thanks to smart people like Rishi, and you who are helping me to understand the country. He talked I mean and and I I just love this notion. What is social media? Then the idea of people being followed. There's you know, obviously exchange, but there's this notion of being followed. And the people being followed, the ones that have influence, one could use a word that is guru. And and Rishi explained to me how there was, I don't know if it still is. a a social media that was all architected around the idea of gurus which is as indian as they get so gurus have followers just like you do in church we didn't actually talk about the religion as another abstract concept that could also have powerful consequences but so india has this notion of gurus and followers social media which is specific i think it was started by india times you have shadi which is another very specific Indian culture centric type of site. I was wondering, what what is your view on social media? Let's say the fact that most of them are American and perhaps you can enlighten me and us on the state of social media within, in India. Are there any other premises uh, that are more Indian than just, you know, Twitter and Facebook?
1: Um. Not really, but I you know, I think all of these um, different uh, sort of platforms like your Twitter and your Facebook, they all appeal to facets of the human condition and there isn't something specific about uh, uh, them that you would say appeals to only an Indian that you know this is this works for uh, uh, Indians per se. You know, they all appeal, for example, to our craving for dopamine. That, which is why we are all the time on our phones and we are looking at our Twitter notifications and Facebook likes and uh, all of that rubbish. They speak to our yearning for community. They speak to our need for validation because what else are we trying? Every time we post something on social media, we are doing it for validation. That is the only reason, right? So it it all speaks to these very human facets but you know if you ask me what social media I've kind of found most fascinating in the last few years and what had a distinctively Indian face to it or that really did something to Indian society in a sense would be TikTok which is now banned of course but what TikTok kind of did was TikTok and 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 there are a couple of simultaneous things that happened here one is that a company called uh, uh, Jio through some help from the government, so slight elements of crony capitalism here, uh, uh, managed to get cheap broadband uh, out in um, out all across India into the smallest villages and so on. So suddenly, broadband and smartphones became almost ubiquitous, and then TikTok came in and it provided a platform for people to a express themselves and to, a, a, and b to see other people like themselves expressing themselves. And this created, um, um, uh, you know, a series of what the sociologist Timur Quran uh, calls preference cascades where people who otherwise did not know that there are others like them or that a certain kind of self-expression or or entertainment is possible, suddenly discovered those possibilities and that exploded in an outpouring of art and comedy and, uh, you know, so on, which was just mind blowing to me. And then very sadly, TikTok got banned. Uh, but all these people who did not have a voice and who did not know they uh, did not have a voice, who did not know that there were others like them, had a voice. And I saw this especially in the LGBTQI community, you know, in the cities, elite uh, um, LGBTQI people might be connected to each other. But in, in villages and small towns and uh, so on. You are not that connected. You may not even know English well enough to be able to go online and see the movements all across the world. And you must at sometimes feel like such a deep uh, misfit. And suddenly on TikTok, you discover that there are so many people like you who can be heroes, who can be gurus, who you can look up to. And and that set about an explosion of um, creative expression. And it's so sad. It is so tragic that you know, TikTok got banned. And and that's also, you know, we often assume that social movements that happen or changes that happen are inevitable. They're going to happen anyway. It's not because of any one person or any one thing. But a lot of this happened because of TikTok. And it's not like TikTok uh, intended it or whatever. It's just that that particular kind of technology at that particular period in time where broadband had just become ubiquitous and so on, just, uh, you know, set off that spark. Which uh, just shows for young entrepreneurs out there that, um, you know, uh, you you just have to keep throwing new things at the wall, you never know what impact something can have in really unexpected ways.
0: Tiktok is not yet banned everywhere. Um, But what it does make me think of is, is another form of community through the memes and the repetitive so someone starts a an art movement does a a jig to some kind of song and then other people do it and that is another highly amorphous community of people who felt aligned with or entertained by a specific idea and then that just transcends borders and towns and beliefs i mean i suppose behind them there are some beliefs but it it's another form of community
1: Yeah, yeah. And and it's also incredible how, uh, like one, this spreads very fast. And what I often found on Indian TikTok is that you'll have a meme that they might even have picked up from elsewhere or it's a meme that starts in India. And it will start in the morning. And by afternoon, there'll be uh, hundreds of thousands of videos on it. And by evening, you the, the there'll be self refer, referential me videos where they are making fun of themselves doing it, and the the meme has suddenly become uh, 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 you, uh you know the mockery Memful. of the meme yeah and, and 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 it's incredible and it evolves like even during COVID right so you know that what has happened during COVID is that all these TikTok creators are now stuck at home what are they going to do at home many of them are alone they don't have access to other tiktokers so initially you see a very sort of easy form of humor and they are making jokes about the lockdown and all that but as you go on over a period of time the humor humor gets so much more sophisticated and it's just incredible and this is coming out of the common people i mean you know and and like the problem with India, when it comes to popular culture, and it may be the problem elsewhere, but I can only talk about India, is that you have gatekeep are gatekeepers of cultures. So culture so far have essentially been the elites. Like in the case of Indian cinema, for example, in Bollywood, there will be two kinds of elites. One is sort of uh, the the guys who've been kind of around forever, and they've got regressive, old, stereotypical notions of the past, and they're going on that. And two is you have sort of the uh, you know, the woke elites who studied abroad and come back and their dad was a producer and all of that and they're doing all of that, which is fine. But none of them have any clue of what the real India is or what the real India wants. And even the real India, in a sense, doesn't know what it wants, Wants right? So, and that kind of art is not finding a voice. And that kind of art did find a voice uh, uh, through uh, TikTok. Where, and it was, and obviously it was even being, Co-opted by the whole celebrity machinery that runs in um, you know, that runs in uh, Mumbai and so on, but regardless of that, I mean, it was it was it was such a delightful outpouring, and and and, and it may not ever have existed, and none of this may, may not have happened, and there might be people who became you know confident creators of their art, uh, or who evolved their humor to that extent, who might never have done any of that or known that they had it within them, and, and this technology enabled that. And and if there's one thing that kind of gives me hope about the future is that whatever happens in politics, uh, you know, within society, if there are enough innovative people creating uh, things like this, I mean, this almost sounds like, like an ode to TikTok in a sense. But you get what I'm saying that, you know, as long as uh, there are people who are throwing things at the wall, uh, good things will happen.
0: So I, there are a number of things in that, uh, Amit, and... Um... Uh, so I, i'll try to unpack them in, but in in bunches the 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 idea of tiktok which you brought up um it's fascinating and this notion of of sort of some the utility of entertainment of individuals stuck in lockdown uh is is speaks volumes i was listening to um palki sharma at uh, gravitas an indian based uh journal um journalist who Who talked who did a re- i thought a very stimulating talk on the role of Bollywood as a soft power for india mm-hmm. i don 't know if you ever had a chance to listen to her. I think she 's quite outspoken and perhaps controversial i don 't know but in in her sort of editorial, she said, "Look at how the United States drives its soft power around the world in large part through Hollywood." which is entertainment. Of course, TikTok is not American, and that is a specific particularity I want to get into afterwards. But Bollywood has, there's something like 2,000 films a year being produced at Collywood, Tollywood, you know, Mollywood, uh, in different languages, different cities. It's extraordinarily vivacious. But she tends to characterize Bollywood as, a uh, fun entertainment, a dance here and there, and more or less Indian centric, but not necessarily espousing something bigger uh, that would corral the rest of the world. Because while Bollywood is very Indian, it's I've seen many Bollywood films and have loved them. Three Idiots stands out as top of the top of the marks, but there are many others and i was wondering what your thinking is about the role of bollywood and could it be or should it be a soft power for india
1: i think the 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 role of bollywood as soft power is a little overstated and even feels a little bit like wishful thinking to me uh, you know i think bollywood abroad uh, would mostly be conf- you know consumed by nris by non resident indians abroad Uh, you know who want that taste of home and you know Bollywood gives them that I'm not sure it's made uh, a global uh, impact uh, beyond that and 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 what in fact I find uh, sort of um, uh, kind of sad is is that even within Bollywood there is this hankering for validation from the West now now the point is a kind of cinema that is there in Bollywood is almost a completely different genre or different art from from cinema elsewhere you know it's uh, uh, bollywood films don't care about realism and uh, you know method acting and all of that it's 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 all escapism and you know our finest actor uh, our most uh, successful actors so to say can not act they, they ham it up like uh, like shahrukh khan who is perhaps the worst actor in the world but a great superstar uh, so so well, i like uh, him. i like him yeah, fair enough. I mean, for what he does, he does it really well. But, uh, you know, I- I- by the, I mean, uh, you know, by this standards of uh, uh, the sort of cinema I love, I don't think one can call him an actor. But leaving, uh, leaving um, um, you know, individuals aside, uh, I think that we should just, uh, uh, you know, that people within Bollywood should just embrace what they do right. Uh, and uh, embrace the following that they have and not have this hankering for the, uh, for uh, you, you, you know, like all of them would, um, uh, uh, you know, they, they'd give a limb to be able to go out and act in Hollywood films or work in Hollywood films or get an Oscar. And, and and there is still, and this is a post-colonial thing that we are still hankering for the approval of the white man. And this, uh, you, and at some level, we need to get comfortable in our own skin and uh, get past that. Also, the thing to note is that all of Indian uh, in the popular culture is not Bollywood, it's just one part of it. In fact, sure. even all of Indian cinema is not Bollywood or, or even mainstream cinema. I mean, obviously, in the South, you have uh, the cinema there, which is as big there as uh, Bollywood and has huge absolute numbers as well. Uh, Not just in a relative sense, Uh, but also even within the Bombay film industry, you have some outstanding filmmakers doing work with uh, a sensibility that is more inspired by world cinema, but will, of course, still have Indian elements in it, but very different from uh, Bollywood, like the, you know, the brilliant director Chaitanya Tamane, who made a super film called Court, which is, you know, one of the best Indian films I've seen in the last 20 years, but there are people doing very good work who are also kind of influenced by uh, world cinema and those kinds of values. So I think, um, you know, but, but anyway, your, that's a ramble. Your question was about soft power. And I just feel that that is overstated. You know, what we need is not, uh, I mean, I I, I, I would say that, that, that the kids who go to IITs and IEMs and then go to Silicon Valley and head up companies, they're a better example of soft power, uh, such, such mm-hmm. as it is, you know, not not these buffoons dancing around trees.
0: Well, no, but, and I, I, so Sharma's point was, it was not to perpetuate buffoons dancing trees. That's high entertainment. Her point was even when American, and it's not to get white approval. It's actually to spread an Indian notion. So it's not to do in the, in the eyes of the white uh, film. It's to do something that promotes something that's stronger than just buffoons, dancing entries. So the idea could be to use Hollywood, Tollywood, Mollywood, Bollywood, I, I, I put them all in one big basket, to in, instead of having the American uh, you know, person who's saving the world from some horrible agent or virus or whatever, having a supreme Indian superpower, superhero, who does something big for the world because if the Indian country is to become what it should, which is by size and by culture and by might, a uh, an influential element of the world, you can do it through the individuals who are running, you know, Sacha or or Nadella and so on. But why not use film as a route to express some Indian? beautiful elements that are stronger than just high entertainment i think
1: what's i mean i don't understand this kind of thinking because we seem to be thinking at the level of countries like what should india do what should the state do let us have a strategy how do we project our soft power do we use bollywood do we i'm uncomfortable with that kind of thinking i think look let's just think at the level of individuals let people consume what they want to consume, let creators create what they want to create and what will happen will be a delightful melange of everything. I mean, the Indian word for it is khichri, which is just like a tasty mixture of a bunch of different things. And I think global culture is moving towards that and will move towards that. And, uh, you know, uh, how much of that is Indian and how much of that spreads, whatever values it spreads, you know I, I i mean i find those kind of discussions pointless people will create what they want to people will consume what they want to and uh, whatever happens will um, uh, you know happen but soft power for example as a tool for foreign policy and all that is really to my mind rubbish you know just because akshay kumar's films are doing well in china doesn't mean that they don't want uh, akshay akshay chin you know So uh, that's just, uh, uh, you you know, as a foreign policy tool, it is simply not there. Uh, Rather than soft power, what you want is a growing economy. And, uh, you know, then you can uh, achieve uh, whatever your um, uh, objectives as a nation might be. So if you're thinking as a nation, I think that's what you need to focus. You just focus on making your own people prosperous, eradicate poverty, make your own people prosperous, Uh, you know, instead of sorting people with the education system, actually start educating them and 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 then good things will happen then then they, then why one nadella there'll be a thousand nadellas you know uh, and that's what you kind of need to focus on all this talk of oh soft power and we have these great civilizational values and we will propagate them and all that is you know just seems really self-indulgent and pointless to me
0: well you it's very interesting what you say because you could say the same thing of Egyptians and, and, G- and Greeks who have wonderfully long cultures but don't have exactly a prosperous economic situation and, and sitting on your laurels doesn't do shit for you. So, uh, I, you know, frankly, if America is where it is, it's not because of the soft power of Hollywood. It's because it has a, a kick-ass economic engine that seems to be working with innovation and so on and so forth. To your point, absolutely. You did use the word kitchery, I believe, just now. And I, I wanted to make a little funny anecdote, which is I thought that that was a Yiddish word, kitsch, because it it, it is it says it means the same thing in Yiddish. And I'm wondering if the Yiddish didn't come from the Hindi then somehow uh, in, a, in a even that that's a, um, uh, a Jewish language, of course, I don't know if they're the same. Do you know? Uh, um, I, I mean, all, um, many of
1: our languages came from Indo-Proto-European, though some did not, but I don't know where Yiddish comes from, so uh, no idea.
0: Well, it's a mixture of German and, um, and Hebrew, but uh, as but far then, as then I, it's probably, from yeah. its roots. Anyway, that, that was a funny little, so now I know another Indian term, Kachuri. So I um, wanted to circle back uh, into another point, which is super important for me, which is the notion of time and i would love for you uh, if you have such a thing wrapped up in a uh, to talk about your philosophy of time and because i i tend to believe that the way you look at time describes who you are so with that what is your philosophy of time
1: my personal i i i think you know a lot of people's philosophies tend to be default philosophies so i i i don't know what philosophy of I, I mean, I, I, I don't even know what you mean by that. Why don't you tell me your philosophy
0: of time and I'll... I'll... All right. So I'll start with my elevator story. So uh, the elevator um, is when I ever am in an elevator, I always believe it could be stuck. So what am I going to do if I'm stuck? Well, I want to make sure I'm not a victim of being stuck. So I always want to make sure I have a contingency for how I'm going to spend time should I get an extra gift of extra time. That's the first example. The second one is, I, I believe uh, time is an indication of respect. And so if uh, you have a meeting, you show up on time because you're respecting the other individual. Of course, you're also managing your own time. I tend to believe that there are only 24 hours in a day. Therefore, I want to be an actor of my time, not a victim of my time. So those are three examples of how I my philosophies of time
1: yeah i mean i mean those are very wise words i shall process them and uh, especially the last one speaks to me because uh, i am just a very bad uh, uh, sort of organizer of my time but you know just to speak of time in general i think one of the things that i've i realized as i reach my middle age is that too many of us spend too much of our time you know thinking too far ahead or too far behind And, you know, uh, and I think that's pointless. I think when you think about, you know, what's going to make you happy, what's going to make you happy, I think, is uh, in a sense, finding joy in the present moment in the things that you have around you. I mean, at this moment in time, uh, are you healthy? Do you have everything that you need to be comfortable? You know, are you doing something that you enjoy? And, um, uh, And why would you not call that heaven? right what what else do you need so uh, uh and i've come to the conclusion that too many of us spend too much time either in anxiety about the future uh, or in regrets over the past uh and in my case i can have plenty of both if i want to but uh, uh yeah, I, I i just find that you know on a, a, a daily basis one of the things that i keep trying to do is just uh, sort of finding some uh satis- satisfaction in the present moment you know, like for example, in the lockdown, I've been uh, locked up at home, and I've suddenly become a connoisseur of bed sheets because I'm at home all the time. So let me, uh, you know, make my uh, immediate environment beautiful, and be and then be mindful of that and enjoy that. So instead of a desk, I actually use an ironing table, which I can, which is flexible. I can move it around the room and all of that. So I've become a connoisseur of ironing boat covers because you know I want it to be the most beautiful ironing table in the world, and and I can take pleasure in a little thing like that. And 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 I find that that I think is sort of it's it's also easier said than done because who doesn't want uh, validation? Who is not uh, occasionally uh, crippled by the anxiety of what others might think? We are hardwired to behave in those ways. So then you actually have to you know be mindful of your own hardwiring and say that shit. I'm not going to get stressed out over this or that or whatever. You know, uh, look at my ironing board cover. It's beautiful. So. <laughs> Yeah, so I mean, I don't know if that qualifies as uh, a philosophy of uh, time, but look, basically, the thing is, you're all going to die, right? That's how it ends. There's no greater meaning. So the thing is, you've got to find different ways of being in denial of that and of coping with that. And I think that one way that might work is just, uh, you know, enjoying what you have in the present moment till it reaches a stage where uh, uh, you can't enjoy it anymore.
0: I love it. Well, a perfect answer, Amit. And certainly I don't think there's right and wrong as far as philosophies of time. It is each to their own. And, and I've always thought that the way you express your view of time is really who you are. And maybe TikTok is really a perfect example of living in the present. I mean, you obviously have to prepare things in order to get the right film. But when you scroll through your TikTok stream, it's just a bunch of being present in that moment, seeing that, laughing, enjoying that, and not worrying about the future, and not thinking about your past, and yet we live in a time where there's a lot of fear and division. And I, I make a, uh, let's say, some kind of joining of the dots between the Boolean binary dis- divisiveness that you know, with me or against me, with the efficiencies and effectiveness of you know, you gotta be really productive at work and a time is money and so on and so forth with long form conversations, which seem to have been cut aside. And, and I was listening to Sam Harris in one of his, and I remarkable, I love his podcast where he allows for long form. And he said that as soon, and I I can't remember if it was you or he who actually talked about how by having long form where the end is, not necessarily definitive, you inevitably have better conversations because you don't need to interrupt the other person. If Even if you disagree with me, Amit, you're going to hear me out. And then because you don't need to cut me off because we don't have a finite ending. And and that notion of limitless time and long form conversation, I feel is the antidote Possibly the solution to the heavy-duty divisiveness that we have.
1: Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, firstly, I'm also a huge fan of Sam Harris. I think he's a master of the craftsman of, you know, how to have a conversation. So good, uh, and 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 that's something that I uh, is almost an article of faith for me that you never interrupt you just don't do it and it's not just a question of time it is also a question of courtesy i mean when do we interrupt we interrupt where we want to make a point and stephen covey's words we are listening to uh, reply not to understand. And I think it's important to uh, because uh, and then what happens if you if, if you think about it, let's say you're in a conversation. And you're constantly interrupting the other person and making your point and saying, No, you're wrong. Hey, let me tell you why you're wrong. What you're really doing is that you're using the other person as a means. To your own sort of self-aggrandisement of a, a, as a means to showing how clever you are, uh, and not as an autonomous being in their own right who is worthy of respect. And and we all kind of do this. We use other people as a means to an end. You know, which is what Kant famously warned about in his categorical imperative that never use another person as a means to an end. Which is what which is what we reflexively do. And sometimes I think it's important to be mindful of that, and especially in a long form conversation. if you sort of give that kind of respect to the other person, and then what happens is that, uh, you uh, you know, that person immediately reciprocates. That respect immediately becomes mutual. And that person is immediately willing to then go that extra mile and go deep and, you know, talk honestly with you and uh, talk in good faith and give you the benefit of uh, uh, doubt and assume goodwill and all of those things. So I think that there is a beauty in, um, uh, you know, there is a beauty in figuring out conversation. Like another master of the art of conversation is uh, uh, Russ Roberts, the host of Econ Talk. And I had him on my uh, show. And uh, that's one of my favorite episodes. It's so lovely. In fact, it was about the art of conversation in a sense. So, I, 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 and I feel gratified that, you know, you, you'd imagine that people keep saying, hey, we live in the age of the short attention span and who listens to long podcasts, who has time and all of that. But, you know, as as I have found, in, as obviously guys like Sam Harris and Russ Roberts have found, is that people have an appetite for long-form. People crave that kind of content. Everything is not just about, uh, you know, the shallow snark of social media. Uh, And here I go hating on social media again but that that people crave these kind of conversations and they do feel enriched by it and 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 then that's something that further sort of inspires me to keep going and keep doing more of these so honestly i i I would just do them for their own sake because it is so rewarding for me as well
0: Mm. well i'm uh, as you know i'm a big fan of your podcast the scene and the the scene and the unseen when we last spoke over the summer You were saying you had over 150,000 listeners. I don't remember the exact term, downloads. Where are you now as it continues to grow? Tell us a little bit of an update. You're up to 195 episodes at time (laughs) of recording.
1: Yeah, it's uh, the, the the numbers are a little better than that. But, uh, uh, you know, the, they don't compare with, say, YouTube, where people get hits in the millions. And what I often keep pointing out is that, you know, that's actually a classic sort of the dichotomy of the deep and the shallow. Though there is some deep content on YouTube, but, uh, you know, a, a, a YouTube video which has like Uh, 30 million uh, views might have an average engagement time of 8 seconds or 15 seconds or whatever so it doesn't really count for much like my show has an average engagement time of 40 minutes Uh, and of course people will listen to episodes in chunks so it's not that they stop uh, listening at 40 and that's off the chart said that sort of engagement is off the charts where you know people will uh you know strangers will meet me and they'll they'll be quoting uh you know what somebody said in episode number so and so and all of that so it is uh, uh so, so, so that's kind of mind-blowing so so yeah i mean i'm 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 constantly sort of gratified by the response that i get to uh the show like today morning someone uh wrote in from canada saying they heard my latest episode and it made them cry because it is such a know moving episode with Achil Malhotra and and people respond to it at that sort of uh level and 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 that's a lovely thing and it also then motivates you to keep it going and and the other element there is you know that you know and I'm sure you would have felt this too that the form in which you create changes the way you think and therefore changes the person you are because if I am doing say 10 minute little nuggety things my thinking is more shallow I am focusing more on grabbing someone's attention than necessarily giving them something of lasting value. And that's how my brain rewires itself. While if I focus on having these longer conversations over two, three hours, uh, you know, uh, the the, the rhythms of my uh, thinking change accordingly. Uh, So, you know, I seem to have stumbled upon something which, you know, I think that, you know, I'm grateful for having stumbled upon and it works for me.
0: Hmm. I love that. I'm going to have to grab that quote and stick it out and tweet it out. That is just beautiful. Um, so Amit, you are somebody who sees so many, you, you interview some of the most extraordinary people, your long form conversations. Uh, sometimes you call it the unseen uh, ramble or diversions, your diversionary tactics are legendary. Um Yet I'm wondering what in Amit's mind uh, keeps you up. You, you see so many things. Your 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 sort of economist mind, obviously sprawling intelligence. That, you know, covers so many different areas. What what is it that keeps you up in terms of all these subjects that you're covering? That's a tough question,
1: and and honestly, I have to say that apart from, I mean, I could give a glib answer like coffee, but uh, uh, I'd say that, look, you know. Well, I, or you could
0: tell me you just sleep perfectly and, you know, never never a second do you have any problem sleeping.
1: No, I mean, I, 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 I don't worry about what's happening in the wider world because, honestly, it is outside my control, and I'm pretty sort of uh, pessimistic about the short term. I'm optimistic about the long, long term, but of course, in the long run, we are all dead, uh, (laughs) as Keen said. But uh, I'm I'm pessimistic about the short term and India certainly, I think, you know, just looking at our politics and looking at our society, I think things are going to get much worse before they get better and and hopefully they'll get better, but they'll get worse before they get better and uh, we, you know, we, we could be in for some dark times ahead and that's just how it is but that doesn't keep me up at you know be, being pessimistic helps because you take the worst for granted you're not going to stay up at night for worrying about it we are going to hell anyway so you know let me enjoy the present moment and my new bed sheet
0: so that's and your new irony board cover on my, yeah exactly but the, let's say that there are so many issues in this negative short term and as a journalist you can't but be thinking about these things um, and, and from my standpoint in London I look over at the Indian sorry the well the eastern let's say space and I think that there is a a lot of room for negativism and and fear and the relationship between India and China stands out, at least because it has the word China in it. We mentioned TikTok earlier. Uh, It it feels like the Indian, the Sino-Indian relationship. I remember you had a podcast about the Sino story. Um, The the Chinese-Indian relationship is uh, fraught at this moment, as it is with so many neighbors of China. And that is something that concerns me. But like you say, I can't do anything about it. At the same time, I'm thinking, well, what are the causes of all these negative short-term things? Because it's the same in England as it is, or UK as it is in France for different reasons with the beheaded professor. Uh, So that should have been, I would say, someone who likes free society like you, free speech, uh, something that hit you. Uh, In America, we have other things by the time this is released. Uh, We might already have a new president, or we know who the next president is in any event. Uh, You know, every country has its own version of it, but there seems to be a general malaise, unless you're in New Zealand, um, about what's happening in every country. Yeah, I mean, look, on the one hand, one tends to...
1: Again, be optimistic about the long term and say that look, the the the, um, the you know the arc of history does bend towards. I mean Martin Luther King said justice, but I'd say the arc of history does bend towards freedom in some way. Uh, so you know one can be optimistic for the long term, but the other thing is that it's not like these things happen in cycles. I think what is happening now is incredibly unique in the sense that our um, uh, tribalistic instincts are baser instincts um, um, uh, you know have been weaponized at scale by uh, uh, partly by social media and, and, and that is what is finding expression and that is what is common to all of these movements ac- uh, across the world that you know back in the day you could be you could be a bigot but you were a closet bigot, it wasn't polite to say those things in public uh, which is what you know the um, Turkish uh, sociologist Timur Quran would call uh, preference falsification and what has since happened because of social media is what he calls preference cascades where people have where bigots have figured out that hey everybody else is a bigot it's cool i'm going to wear it on my sleeve don't need to dog whistle anymore and that's where all these movements come from now what i sort of tend to optimistically believe is that look we have it's it's not that there are bigots and non-bigots there are good guys and bad guys like you said that kind of binary even at the level of individuals is something i absolutely don't believe i think we all contain money. We can all be monsters on a bad day and we can all be good human beings on a good day. And and uh, I, I think what people like us have to figure out is ways to appeal to the better angels of everybody's nature, to, to sort of stress on the concrete things that bring us together rather than the abstract things that uh, divide us. You know, I'm sure there are uh, more people in this world who would feel um, uh, joy at the soothing side of a beautiful ironing board cover than uh, who would plead allegiance to uh, any particular abstract religion. You know, we, we, so it, it, it's it's uh, so again in the long run, I'm hopeful, and my strategy is um, I, uh, 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 although I'm not following out on it because I'm so damn lazy, but my strategy really is to take care of my health and live long enough to see better days.
0: Nice. In in my mind, I'm I'm connecting a few dots uh, based on on what you're saying. Uh, You you say that you're optimistic about the future because the arc of history leads us to more freedom. I feel that the short term is all about more control and COVID seems to be the, let's say the the weapon within uh, to uh, enable greater control country by country in different contexts. And then the second parallel I have is concrete versus abstract. So freedom versus control, abstract versus concrete. Uh, It's not because they both begin with a CO, but somehow I feel that concrete is closer to control and freedom is closer to abstract. Well, I mean, the, the point is there are
1: good abstractions and bad abstractions and what we are troubled by today are the bad abstractions and nationalisms and uh, the tribalisms and all of those things. And what really binds people together are the concrete things, uh, uh, the, the, the the things that sort of, uh, you know, it doesn't matter whether you're, um, uh, you know, a Muslim or a Hindu or a Jew or whatever. If you're drinking, if you like Diet Coke, you like Diet Coke, you know, that's a very Trivial, uh, sort of concrete thing that by, that holds all these people together. So in that sense, I think there can be a refuge in the concrete. And of course, there are good abstractions as well. There can be communities which are not based around things which divide us. Uh, you know, as you said, freedom is an abstraction. So there can be uh, good abstractions. But, I, I, you know, I think if we just look around us in our personal lives, see how we treat other people, see how they treat us, I think there is hope in the concrete but um, it's, uh, uh, and again, maybe I'm uh, sort of overthinking it and maybe I should not be so optimistic and it's just going to get worse before it gets even worse and that. So we'll see. But (laughs)
0: yeah, I mean, yeah. It is a tough world. And my wife is generally of the pessimistic variety, hot glasses, half empty. And she says it suits her better because her expectations are so much lower. And I think that's to your point, So Amit, last question for you. Um, You won the Bastiat Prize for journalism and uh, I was reading up about it. It's uh, the purpose of the Bastiat Prize is to identify and honor writers whose work cleverly, I quote, and wittily promotes the institutions of the free society, end quote. You've won this twice. I wonder just from what was inside Amit's mind when he got the telephone call or the email when he won it the first time, and I want to ask you what the feeling was the second time, because you're the only journalist to have ever won it twice. Uh,
1: I was the first person to win it twice. I think Tim Howford won it uh, oh. twice as well. Uh, I won in 2007 and 2015. He won in 2006 and 2016. Oh, so you, you could go. say he, uh, Tim, sandwiched me. Well, you know, the the the, the 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 I knew that I had won it at the event itself. Uh, mm-hmm. They they call the shortlisted people, and you get to know there, and obviously I was pretty thrilled and uh, uh, you know i look it's 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 a human condition right you want validation uh, especially from white people <laughs> so <laughs> uh, yeah so it was uh, yeah so so uh, both times it was great but more than that there is there is uh, sort of something that i find uh, Even moving, thinking about Bastia himself, like the prize is named after Frederick Bastia, one of my uh, favorite essays, a great classical liberal, who in fact wrote an essay called That Which Is Seen and That Which Is Not Seen, from which I took the title of my podcast. And I see Bastia as someone, especially in the years when he was as old as I am now, you know, going on from his 40s to his 50s, as fighting a losing cause, writing repeatedly about ideas which he knew were not shared by most people, but perhaps writing in the hope that, you know, a future generation would find inspiration uh, uh, in his words, as indeed they did, as indeed I did. So, you know, when you talk about uh, the future and what impact you can have and all of that, you know, in a sense, I get that I am that my ideas in that sense are, you know, not going to be shared by too many people in India for a long, long time you know there is not a single politician in this country i can support or even agree with Uh, 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 and in that sense it's a bit of a lonely path but then the thing is you look at people like Bastia or people like um, uh, you know George Orwell who wrote so many uh, great essays again at around the same period of time and not for a moment am I comparing myself to them of course. But, the, but then the thing is that you realize that ultimately all of these sort of intellectual battles are inevitably going to be lonely battles, you can't think about uh, winning them, there is no end game. You just do what you have to do. And in a sense, this might tie back to uh, what you began the episode with by talking about karma that, you know, you do the right thing and don't worry about the fruits of your actions, which is also a lesson I learned from poker, because in poker, again, you are focused on process and not uh, result. Right. You can't be results oriented because the result of any one hand is uh, there's a large, large percentage of luck that goes in the skill comes in in the long run. Your edge will really reflect once you put in volume and play. Hundreds of thousands of hands. So as a poker player, what you're focusing on is that you make the right decisions, and you don't think about the immediate consequences because they will not reflect the 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 value of your uh, uh, the 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 correctness of your decision making. Uh, you just do the right thing, and whatever um, happens, happens. You can't control that. And and that is something which I think is uh, uh, so. Yeah. So I've just connected poker and Hinduism for you. There you go.
0: I love that. I mean, it really speaks volumes because this notion of of how you do things in the present to, sure, get a result down the line, counts. And that's what people look at. It includes ethics, as you say, you know, what's right, what's wrong. And I, I feel that, and that's the subject of my new book which is and i actually talk about karma not in a, a religious manner at all but this notion of understanding what is right and wrong and believing in things that may not be popular which i think is the 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 hair that i'd pull or the the thread that i would pull out of the wool sweater which is the over political correctness that we've developed which means we can't say anything and the white man in particular uh, which is being, you know, generally being identified for saying the wrong things, being a bigot or other things, and and for having clamped down the ability to say anything, doesn't feel like he is anybody, and and I think that's part of our problem here, where we've got this resurgence of white male dominant figures, looking to hold control. Of course, there may be women in there too, but mm-hmm. that that's the thread that I would pull. <laughs> so do you want to do you want to comment?
1: No, I mean, I mean, we, uh, you know, there's that old Chinese curse, may you live in interesting times. So in that sense, uh, uh, it could be said that both you and I are are cursed, we do live in interesting times, but I don't think of it as a curse. I, 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 especially if you're a creator or an artist, these are, these are very interesting times. And I think you have to kind of be detached a little bit and not get too emotionally involved and, you know, just roll with it.
0: I like to say embrace the chaos. (laughs) <laughs> and uh, I certainly believe in that. These are extraordinary times as a creator. Um, and one of the things you said in one of your podcasts or maybe in the interview that we had before, which is you, you have specifically gone about trying to make a, a legacy through your podcast and your blog posts that will stand the ta- stamp of time so that they're for an audience down the road long term. And I think that's an extraordinary ambition to have.
1: Yeah. I mean, you know, one of my friends was starting a podcast recently and she asked me for advice. And I said that, you know, don't think about what your listener will listen to in episode one. Think about what they will binge on when they discover you at episode 100, you know, Build that body of work. Don't overthink the response now. And my advice to all creators in that sense is that, you know, people often say uh, uh, about, uh, you know, people who forecast the future, about forecasters, that they tend to, uh, you know, overestimate the short term and underestimate the long term. And I think with creators is the same thing, that they tend to overestimate the riches and the followings that they will get in the short term. And then they, they, feel they will inevitably be disappointed. But if you just keep at it, if you just keep at it, I think it might be the case that you underestimate the long term and certainly for my podcast at one point I decided that um, uh, it so turned out that the podcast is extremely popular and all of that but uh, that's not some I I assumed that would not happen and I I just said that look what I'm going to do is I'm not going to think about validation or the respect of my peers and all of those things because I've just in a sense been an outsider all my life so that's not going to happen what I'm going to do is I'm going to think of an audience 30 years from now and give them something that will um, uh, uh, and give them something to cherish something that will be sort of a picture of the times we live in and what people thought and what the state of the knowledge at that time was and that's also one of the reasons for the length uh, that uh, you know I, in a sense i'm also creating an archive for the future which might sound actually now that i say it it sounds so arrogant and grandiose and all of that like who the hell am i to say things like this but yeah that's what i set out to
0: do well, they always say that journalists are the first page of a history book, or at least the first write of it. So, Amit, whether it's your writing course, your blog, your podcast, how can what are the best ways to connect with you, listen to what you're up to, and if you like for people to comment to you, how do you choose that?
1: Um, uh, well, my podcast is "Seen and the Unseen" is on seenunseen. In and. Uh, uh, you know, I also have a newsletter now, uh, though I need to be more regular at substack called Indiauncut.substack.com. Indiauncut.com is where my blog used to be. It's now just a repository of my a repository of my published writing. And and you can uh, uh follow me on uh Twitter. So uh, yeah, yeah, all of these things.
0: All right. I'll put all of that into the show note. I'm it uh, a pleasure anticipated uh, a present moment it was and hopefully for the future it shall be thank you so much for being on the show Amit and look forward to staying in touch thank you for inviting me it's a great honor for me thank you thanks for having listened to this recording of the Minter Dialogue show you'll find the show notes and other blog posts on com. if you enjoyed the show please head over to iTunes to give a rating and review and to finish Here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
2: my line.